0: The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me once again to the book of Leviticus. We are doing some work in Leviticus these last couple weeks. I hope it's been as fun for you as it has been for me. You didn't know that you needed to be in Leviticus but today concludes our study through the feasts of Israel, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is today. That is the seventh feast on the Jewish calendar, the seventh and final feast. And, and as you know by this point, we study all the feasts of the Lord around here. And we do so for a couple of different reasons. Firstly, These feasts give us a key that unlocks all kinds of understanding regarding the ministry of Jesus. If you want to know what Jesus accomplished and why Jesus came, then you need to study and understand the feasts of the Lord. And and they act like a key that unlocks all kinds of revelation and understanding regarding the ministry of Jesus. But in addition to that, the feasts also function like a Rosetta stone. They help us to interpret the prophetic times. And by studying the feasts, you can gain understanding regarding God's redemptive plan for the whole world. So the way I like to say it is, if you want to fall more in love with Jesus... Or if you're interested at knowing where we sit on God's prophetic timeline, then you need to study the feasts. And with that as an introduction, let's go ahead and begin reading there in Leviticus 23, picking up in verse 39. It says, so beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you have gathered the crops of the land. Celebrate the festival to the Lord. So it's a festival for seven days. The first day is a Sabbath rest, and the eighth day also is a day of Sabbath rest. On the first day, you are to take branches from luxuriant trees, from palms, willows, and other leafy trees, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate in the seventh month. Live in the temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters. And so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The first thing I want you to notice is the emphasis on joy. It's called a festival unto the Lord, and so that denotes joy and celebration. But also twice in these verses, God commands his people to celebrate. And on another occasion, he tells them to rejoice. Now, this is just kind of a sub point, but I want to drop this in there for your consideration. There is no other conclusion that you can draw by a reading of God's scripture other than this. We serve and worship a God who loves to celebrate. Think about all of the parties that are scattered throughout the year. Each one of the seven feasts, with the Day of Atonement being the only exception, they're called feasts and they all revolve around partying. These are seven appointments throughout the year where God says you will gather and you will party. It's a command. We need to be having more fun. Someone say amen. Sometimes I think that truth gets lost on religious people. We think that to be holy, you have to be serious. And we equate holiness with somberness, which isn't biblical. Nobody has more fun than the Lord. Where did Jesus do his first miracle? At a wedding in Cana. What does he say happens in heaven every time a sinner repents? All the angels stop whatever they're doing, and there is great rejoicing in heaven. So there are these seven parties called feasts. Now, of all the parties that Israel threw, none were bigger or more joyous than the Feast of Tabernacles. That's because at this feast, they got to celebrate the final ingathering of the harvest. Now, this was significant because in an agrarian society where everything from you know, their, their economy to their personal well-being and putting a roof over their head, it was all tied to how well the crops did. And so they were acutely aware as a people of their dependence on God to provide the rain right? Because without the rain, it doesn't matter how hard you work or how early you get up in the morning. Without rain, nothing is going to grow. And so they were aware of their dependence on the Lord to provide the rain. And each year at this time, after the harvest had been gathered in, the Feast of Tabernacles provided the people with an opportunity to come before the Lord and to show their thanks, And this is just a good, healthy habit for Christians. By the way, I forgot to mention this. The first fill in the blank for your outline is this. Tabernacles is a feast of celebration. It's a feast of celebration, so you can go ahead and fill in that blank. But you know, here in America, we have a day that we set aside annually for that same purpose. We call it Thanksgiving, right? It's one of my favorite holidays. And and to be sure, we have a lot to be thankful for as Americans. Regardless of how you feel about the current political climate or where things are headed in our country, by virtue of the fact that you're an American and you have the freedom and the right to be here in this place and open this book and study the word of God freely without fear of reprisal or, or, or being thrown in jail or any of these kinds of consequences that Christians in other countries face, we have a lot to be thankful for. Amen. And so we, we should be the most thankful of all. But it's not just Americans who have a lot to be thankful for as Christians. Oh, how much more do we? <laughs> Because in addition to these freedoms, we've been set free at a deeper level, praise the Lord. We've been set free from our sin. Our past has been forgiven. Our future is forever. And that alone should be enough to cause each one of us to overflow with gratitude, which ought to be one of the defining characteristics of each and every one of us. Paul put it this way in his letter to the Colossians. This is Colossians 2, 6, and 7. Let's go ahead and read it out loud together. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught abounding in it with thanksgiving. The word abound means to overflow. And I don't know that there's anything more becoming of a saint of God than an attitude of gratitude. We should overflow with thanks for all that God has done. Now, Tabernacles was that day for the Jewish people. It provided them with a chance to show their gratitude. But not only was it a day of celebration, Tabernacles is also a feast of commemoration. Let me explain that. You can jot that down, by the way. It's in your notes as well. While on the one hand, the feast allowed the people to celebrate the Lord's faithfulness in providing the rain for the last year. At the same time, It also gave them an opportunity to commemorate God's faithfulness in leading them through the wilderness and bringing them into the promised land. In many ways, the story of the nation of Israel begins, so to speak, with their dramatic rescue from bondage and slavery there in Egypt. And then they make their way into the promised land. Now, between Egypt and And the promised land, there's a 40-year window of time. These 40 years were spent wandering through the wilderness. Now, during those 40 years, some important things transpired and took place. God began to reveal himself, his character, his heart, his nature, how he wanted to meet with the people and what was required in order for them to meet with God. All of that happened during those 40 years. Simultaneously, God provided miraculously in all kinds of interesting ways for the needs of his people. During the heat of the day there in the desert, God was a a covering in the form of a cloud to keep them cool. At night, when the temperatures could plummet, he became a pillar of fire to keep them warm and also to protect them from any dangers. Every morning, he would provide for their physical needs by raining down manna from heaven. And manna was this edible substance. It was, it was just kind of like these little wafers or flakes and you could eat it. And they found all kinds of interesting ways to cook up manna, manna every day, manna caught in the morning, all kinds of different desserts with manna. It was what they ate during the 40 years. And then he also provided water from a rock. He instructed Moses to go and strike this rock and out of the rock flowed water. We'll talk more about that in a a moment. But the point is, at the Feast of Tabernacles, did you catch the emphasis on this is to happen for seven days, the Lord says. And during that period, I want you to build shelters Now, we've built one up here on the stage. We have another one that you guys can go out and and see on our Solomon's porch, but the structures were similar to this. And in fact, when you go to Israel, even in this modern day, if you were to go there today, you would see outside of all these beautiful homes, you'd see these shelters, these tabernacles. They're three-sided structures with leaves covering the roof. And God says, use luxuriant, leafy branches and palms. He instructs them to do this so they could Look through the slats as they're camping out and see the stars. Now, why would he do this? Well, he tells us there in verse 43 that this is how your descendants lived during their wilderness wandering. And you can imagine this would have been a a really fun time that the kids looked forward to each year. A week-long camping trip with mom and dad and everybody moves out of the house. And, and not only was it a lot of fun, but it was also a teaching moment. It provided the parents with an opportunity to rehearse the narrative and tell the story to the next generation about where they'd come from and what God did and how God provided. And this is important, parents. Don't just assume that because you're a believer, your kids are going to be believers and they'll figure it out on their own. No, 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 you need to instill within them the lessons from your past, show them how God has been faithful to you, and then you instill that within your kids. And, and so all of that was happening at the Feast of Tabernacles, but there's something else going on. You see, it wasn't just the Israelites who lived and dwelt in tents during those 40 years, but so too, we find that during that season, the Lord instructed Moses to build him a tabernacle. Why? Exodus 25, 8 tells us, so that he might dwell among his people. Now, we often associate the Lord's presence with the temple. Maybe you think of David's temple, or Solomon's temple, rather, or, or later the, the second temple that was around at the time of Jesus. But understand something. God never asked for his people to build him a temple, a permanent structure What he did ask for was a tent, a tabernacle. Why did he want that tent? So he could be closer to his people. Can we just sit in this thought for just a moment and elaborate on it? The same God who spoke the stars into the heavenly cosmos, the same God who spans the universe between his fingers, that God chose to condescend and come down from his throne in heaven and to dwell in physical manifest Shekinah glory there in a lowly tent. Why would he do this? Again, I stress the point. It's because he wanted to be close. That's what the whole sacrificial system that he instituted during this season was all about. It was all about closing the gap that sin created. It was all about his desire to draw near. You see, if you as a Jew or a Gentile wanted to commune with God at that time, you would go to the tabernacle it's where you went to worship. It's where you went to pray. It's where you went to connect. It's where you went to commune. If you wanted to meet with God, you did it at the tabernacle. That's why more space, listen to this, more space is devoted to the description of the tabernacle and the goings on in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. More space devoted to that topic than any other subject in the entire Old Testament. Again, it's because God wanted to communicate and emphasize his desire to want to meet with his people. And yet, while the tabernacle allowed the Lord to enjoy a certain degree of intimacy with the people, there was still far too many restrictions, far too many limitations on how close they, would, they could get. For example depending on your things like your your race or your background or your condition or your gender or your bloodline it all determined how close you were able to get to God and God longed to tear down those barriers and draw even closer which is leads us into our next point you see Tabernacles wasn't just about celebrating, it wasn't just about the celebration, or, or, or it wasn't just about um, commemorating what God had done. Tabernacles also pointed to a future event called the incarnation, which is the third point in our outline, if you want to fill in that blank. Tabernacles is all about the incarnation. What do I mean by that? Well, think with me about something. In the Gospel of John, he introduces the story of Jesus to us in a rather peculiar way, right? Unlike the other Gospel authors, he doesn't begin with the genealogy of Jesus. He doesn't tell us about Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the manger like Luke does, nor does he begin his account of Jesus' story by t- talking about the Magi like, like Matthew does, but instead, When John tells us about the genesis of the gospel story, he goes all the way back to the beginning, not Jesus earthly beginning, but to like the very beginning. And he says in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. He goes on to say, and the word was with God and the word was God the word was with God in the beginning and everything that was made was made through him and he was in him was life and that life gave light to all mankind. And we're left to wonder, who is this mysterious word who made everything and was with God and in him was life and light. And John makes us wait for 14 agonizing verses before he tells us in John 1:14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You might want to circle or underline that word dwelt because it's the same word that we're word reading about here. It's the word tabernacled. Jesus literally came down and tabernacled among us. I love the way the message version of the Bible translates that same verse in John 1:14. It says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That's beautiful. Why did Jesus leave heaven and come to this earth? For the same reason that God asked to dwell in an earthly tent made by human hands. He wanted to be close. And by taking on flesh, Jesus was finally able to do away with all of the restrictions. He was able to remove all of the red tape and give people access to the presence of God in ways they had never experienced it before. And I love the fact that Jesus was always getting into the nitty gritty. He was always reaching out and touching people because it communicates God's heart. He wants to be close. And and the first tabernacle It was a mere shadow of what Jesus would ultimately fulfill. In so many ways, that earthly tabernacle, that tent in which God dwelt, it pointed to the future reality that Jesus fulfilled, all the way down to the way the tabernacle was constructed and looked. It was very plain on the outside. It was made of of badger skins, and so it was just leather on the outside, nothing that would attract you to it outwardly. However, once you walked inside of it, its beauty would be revealed. And there was all of this gold and all of these beautiful pieces of furniture that had been crafted by artisans. And and there were tapestries and and things that were woven into the curtains. And it was it was ornate and glorious and beautiful. And and in so many ways that speaks to us of Jesus. Isaiah 53, 2 tells us that there was nothing outwardly about the Messiah that would attract us to him. If you were to see Jesus, he would easily get lost in a crowd. He didn't hover two feet off the ground. He didn't glow. He didn't have a halo above his head, any of these kinds of things. He was just a normal guy. And yet, every time he opened his mouth, what was on the inside was revealed and heaven itself came pouring out. It was only when he opened his mouth, you got a sense. I've never heard someone talk like this guy before. Now, the Gospels do record one instance in which Who Jesus really was, his glory that was hidden behind a veil of flesh. It was revealed for a few brief moments. It happened there on the top of a mountain when Jesus was with three of his disciples, Peter, James and John. And they're on the top of this mountain. The Bible tells us that he was transfigured before them. And it was as though who he really was, his glory manifest and his face begins to shine and his clothing becomes white. And suddenly there in their midst, they see Jesus and he's talking with Moses and Elijah two have hitters from the Old Testament. And Peter, in that moment, blurts out, it's good that we're here. You know what we should do? Let's build three tabernacles, one for you, Jesus, and one for you, Moses, and one for you, Elijah. What was he saying? He was saying, hey, let's just build three tents, and we'll just camp out here forever, just basking in the Lord's glory. Now, Mark, in his version of this story, adds this insight. Peter said this because he didn't know what to say, (laughs) He was one of those people. Some people, it's like, you know, I'll just keep talking until I find something to say. That was Peter. And yet the Lord, you know, he's not on the same plane as Moses and Elijah. And so God interrupts Peter and he says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. In other words, Peter, you're trying to to make the ground level and you're equating Jesus on the same ground as Moses and Elijah. But he's in a league all on his own. He's not just a good man or a godly man. He is the God man. He is God in human flesh. You know, one of the many titles ascribed to Jesus in the Bible is Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. That's who Jesus is. He takes the God who is out there and he brings him down here and makes him tangible and accessible. In Jesus, the eternal word puts on flesh and bone. The infinite becomes finite. The invisible becomes visible. The unknowable becomes knowable the transcendent becomes intimate, and the untouchable becomes touchable. Oh, don't you love that about Jesus? He brings God down and puts him in terms that we can relate to. I've always loved this little anecdote, this story about a father and his son. It illustrates the point I've been trying to make. And In the story, the father tucks his little boy into bed and and then he goes and climbs into bed himself. And later that night, a storm breaks out and there's a clap of thunder and a flash of lightning and it. It startles the boy and it wakes him up and he's scared. And so he calls out to his daddy from his bed and says, Daddy, Daddy, come here. I'm scared. I need you. But the father, it's been a long day. He's in bed. You parents will relate. He's like, oh, I'm tired. And then he has a brilliant thought. (laughs) He says, it's okay, son, he yells to him from his bed. God loves you and he'll take care of you. There's a moment of silence. The father thinks he's won. But then the kid cries out, Daddy, I know God loves me. But right now I need someone with skin on them. And we can relate to that. Sometimes we just need someone with skin on it. And that's who Jesus is. He's God with skin on him. And in a way, that's what Tabernacles is all about. It's about the incarnation. And yet, even though taking on flesh and blood allowed Jesus to enjoy a whole new degree of intimacy where he's now rubbing shoulders with the people he loves, he still wanted to get closer. And that's why he went to the cross. You see, there's an interesting story in the seventh chapter uh, of John's gospel that I think highlights and underscores where Jesus was going with this whole thing. And it happened at the Feast of Tabernacles. As a grown man, Jesus attends the Feast of Tabernacles. and, And there were all these ceremonies and rituals that accompanied this feast, just like there were with all the feasts. Now, one of the interesting ones that happened during the Feast of Tabernacles is Each morning of the seven days of the feast, the priests would take a golden pitcher and they would walk from the temple down the hill to the pool of Siloam where they would fill it up. They would return to the temple and they would pour it out at the base of the altar. And this would be accompanied by singing and rejoicing and dancing. Now, why would they pour this water out in that way? For a couple of reasons. Number one, it was, again, symbolic of the fact that God has provided more than enough water, not just for our crops, but we can literally pour water out onto the the floor and waste it because he's been so lavish in his grace. But secondly, it also reminded the people of the water that God had provided from the rock during the wilderness wanderings. Now, they did this for seven days. When it came to the eighth day, which is also called the great day of the feast, There was no water ceremony, but on this day, the people all gathered there in the temple courts and they stood in silence. Why? Because although God had fulfilled so many of his promises to the people, there was one more promise they were still waiting for the fulfillment of. They were longing for the coming of the Messiah and yes, they were in the promised land. And God had been faithful to bring them there. But even still, they were under the throne of the thumb, if you will, of Rome. They were under Roman occupation. Yes, they had the glorious temple. But in the days of Ezekiel, the prophet, the glory had departed from that temple. Yes, they had the sacred scriptures, but for 400 years, the prophetic voice had gone silent. And so all of these factors contributed to the longing that was expressed in this moment of silence for the Messiah to come and make it all right. And John 7:37 tells us that it was during this moment of silence that Jesus stood up in the midst of the people and he cried out, if any man thirsts. Let him come to me and out of his innermost being shall gush forth torrents of living water. In that moment, Jesus was unmistakably claiming to be the answer to everyone's collective prayers for the Messiah to come. He's saying, in essence, I'm the only thing that can truly satisfy you. In fact, I am the rock that was struck in the wilderness by Moses, from whom the water flows. Remember, he he struck the rock, as I shared with you, and the water flowed out to meet the needs of the people. Well, think with me. What happened to Jesus after he hung on the cross for six hours, paying for the sins of the world? He cries out, it is finished. And he gives up his ghost. And then the Bible tells us that a Roman soldier took a spear and thrust it into Jesus' side. And John tells us that outflowed two things, blood and water, blood and water. And I suggest to you that just as the water flowed from the rock after it was struck to meet the needs of the people, The water that flows from Jesus' side after he was struck by the spear, it comes to us to meet our needs. What am I saying? You have a need for forgiveness. We carry guilt. We walk around with shame. And the water from Jesus' side that flows down from the cross, it washes you. It cleanses you just as the blood does. It is the water that washes away our sins. Praise the Lord. Jesus said, now you're clean through the words that I have spoken to you like water. It washes us and makes us clean. But the work of the water doesn't end there. It then goes into us, and it fills us from the inside out until it becomes a river that flows from us. You remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well? He talked to her about water, and he said, if you drink from this water, you'll thirst again. And we might write those words over every attempt or pursuit of happiness apart from the Lord that we chase. It'll leave you thirsting again. The wells of this world can't satisfy. But when you come to Jesus, he washes away your sins wonderfully. But then he comes into your heart. He fills you up from the inside out. And then he begins to bubble over and spill out from you. He fills you with the spirit. That's what John says Jesus was talking about. And the fruit of the spirit in your life, you'll know you're flowing in the river of the spirit when you begin to walk in more love, and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and gentleness, and self-control. These are the fruit of the Spirit. And notice how this water that comes to us washes over us. Then it takes up residence within us. Listen, I've been going somewhere with this whole thing, and this was always God's plan from the beginning. You see, while the tabernacle provided one degree of closeness, it takes the God who's out there and somewhere up there, And brings him down to to -to face-to-face level. The incarnation did that to a whole new degree and a whole new level. It brought out a whole new layer of closeness. But it wasn't close enough. That's why Jesus went to the cross. The incarnation was so that he could get to the cross, and the cross was so that he could get to us, so that he could remove every barrier between God and men, so that sin could be dealt with, that he might make his home in us. This is the New Testament reality in which you and I live. And in Revelation 3, the Lord makes the most astounding invitation to anyone who will listen. And I want us to read this out loud. It's Revelation three 19. Let's go ahead and read that together. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. In this verse, the Lord pictures the human heart like a door. And he says, I'm, I'm there and I'm knocking. And it, my desire is to come in. In, but he doesn't kick the door down. He waits to be invited. He doesn't just want to be with you. He doesn't just want to be near you. He longs to dwell within you. If the great revelation of the Old Testament is that there is a God and that God is with us in the new covenant through the work of the cross, that revelation gets transformed so that now our reality is Christ in us. That's the hope of glory. Throughout the New Testament, you read these two words over and over and over again. We are in him. That is your status positionally as a believer. You are in Christ, which means he doesn't just dwell in the tabernacle. He dwells in you. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? See, they had the cloud, we think, isn't that cool? We have the spirit. They had manna from heaven, we get the bread of life. They had water from a rock, we get the rivers of living water that flow out of our very soul. They had the presence with them, we have the presence within us. And yet there's still an ache, a longing in our hearts for something more. Which leads me to the final point that I want to make concerning The Feast of Tabernacles, it's not just about celebration and commemoration and the incarnation. Fourthly and finally, it is ultimately a feast of anticipation. You see, from a prophetic standpoint, the Feast of Tabernacles is all about that time when God comes down from heaven and establishes his throne here on earth. The Bible tells us that when Jesus comes back, the earth is going to undergo a a radical transformation. You know, we get a sense of who God is by looking at the creative order around us. You can see that he's big, that he's powerful, and that he's artistic and good. But the picture we get of God is also fractured. It's kind of like if you took a mirror, you looked at your reflection, and then you smashed that mirror and looked down. You, you would see something of yourself, but it would be a distorted image. You know, you have an eye here, a shoulder there, all the rest. It's not the true revelation of who you are. And so too, our world, it gives us an understanding on some level of who God is, but that picture is is fragmented and fractured. When Jesus comes back, he's going to fix it. He's going to reset the factory settings on earth and show us what his original design and intent was. He's going to bring the earth back to an Eden-like state, and then he's going to set up his throne in Jerusalem where he will rule for a thousand years. And in that time, we're finally going to Be able to walk in and know what God had in mind for us all along. He'll tabernacle with us. Revelation 21.3 says it like this. Let's read this together out loud. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. He will finally tabernacle on the earth and rule and reign for a thousand years. And during that thousand year reign, Satan's going to be locked up. War will become a thing of the past and there will finally be world peace. The lion will lie down like with the lamb. Death, sorrow and suffering will become distant memories and the desert will blossom like the rose. And you know something else that's going to happen during the millennium? The Bible tells us that annually, this is Zechariah 14, we will go up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. <laughs> Interesting. Why would we do that? I would suggest for your consideration that we'll do it at that time for the same reason that Israel does it now. In the same way that they were rehearsing God's faithfulness to bring them through the wilderness. We'll do it in that season to symbolize God's faithfulness in bringing us through the wilderness of this world. Amen. You see, this life, it's like a desert in some ways. And yes, there is miraculous provision from heaven. God is with us. He dwells within our hearts by faith. He leads us and he guides us. But there are also some hard things and there are some dry times. And, and yet we remember that God was with us in this season, but it will ultimately be realized in that glorious time called the millennium when we're with the Lord and his kingdom has come. And his will is done down here on earth, even as it is in heaven. It will finally be the realization of that prayer that saints for generations and thousands of years and millennia have been praying. Lord, let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth. And in the millennium, those prayers will finally be answered. And we're going to get there. And this feast, it all pictures and foretells of that time. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this time that we've had to sit at your feet and glean from your word and soak our souls in the truth of scripture. We thank you that you're a God who's not distant or cold or indifferent or hard-hearted or removed to the the plights of his people, but you're a, a God who longs to draw near. We see that pictured in such a beautiful way. On this day, the Feast of Tabernacles, you came and dwelt in a tent and and then you tabernacled among us in the person of Jesus, but that wasn't close enough. And so you made our heart your home. You moved in, not just to the neighborhood, but you moved into our heart. Now, Lord, help us to realize the fullness of your presence. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.